Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Have a restful weekend. This is NPR News. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the Mississippi Office of Homeland Security with a reminder that you can report suspicious behavior to law enforcement or a person of authority by calling 1-888-4-SAFE-MS. Public safety is everyone's responsibility. If you see something, say something. Good morning. It's 8.30. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, upgrading the infrastructure in the Delta with $15 million in grants. Infrastructure investments, as we all know in the business, create good-paying jobs today while, quite frankly, laying the foundation for a stronger economic future. Then, how do you access the justice system when you can't afford an attorney? And the U.S. Justice Department is saying goodbye to private prisons. We'll take a closer look at some of the reasons. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Delta Regional Authority says $15 million in grants will help complete eight infrastructure projects in the state and hopefully bring more economic opportunity. The improvements range from sewer projects in Cleveland and Lexington to establishing an urgent care clinic in Belzona. In a state where infrastructure is old and failing, DRA co-chair Chris Massengill says the choices were difficult. He tells MPB's Ezra Wall a solid infrastructure is a necessary necessity for economic development. Strong infrastructure is key for Mississippi to continue to attract companies, employ the skilled workers, and help lead the entrepreneur spirit and innovation. Infrastructure is a critical component of that success, and we need to continue to have a focus and continue to invest in our infrastructure. And these investments will go a long ways in helping to move these projects forward. So how many projects uh, are highlighted uh, here in Mississippi? In this particular round, which is our first phase, we've got about eight projects in this first round for Mississippi, and then we'll have additional projects uh, towards the end of September that we will be announcing. Uh, specifically, almost three point, uh, well, a little over $3.3 million of direct investment from DRA, and then the others coming from the private and public sectors uh, helping to complete almost $15 million. And I tell you, a big part of this is a big thank you to our congressional delegation, Senator Cochran, leading that uh, with the additional resources that he helped champion to bring to the Delta Regional Authority so we can in turn make these kind of sound strategic investments into uh, these infrastructure projects. The actual cost of the projects themselves, the investments that are being made now, about $15 million worth. But that's, uh, that's, I would imagine, sort of the tip of the iceberg in terms of the potential economic impact when you consider what will be made possible through uh, enhanced infrastructure. That's exactly right. Infrastructure investments, as we all know in the business, uh, create good-paying jobs today while 
quite frankly, laying the foundation for a stronger economic future. When you're talking about sewers and access roads and, and clean water, uh, may be uh, glamorous to some, but they are truly the building blocks for Mississippi to continue to attract, keep, and expand the great global companies that we have. And we want to see more of that come to the Delta region because we've got the skilled workers and we certainly have the entrepreneur spirit. Tell me a little bit about the selection process uh, for these. I know throughout Mississippi, not just in the Delta, uh, infrastructure uh, woes are sort of at the top of everyone's to-do list. And so when when an organization like yours comes out and says, hey, we're going to be granting a little bit in the area of infrastructure improvement, uh, let us know what your projects are. I could imagine you must have been inundated with requests. Well, we always have uh, more requests and and more need than we actually have resources for. So you have to be uh, very strategic. These are about uh, looking at the highest priority. Where can we get the leverage? Where can we get the uh, collaboration? Do you have multiple funding partners? Are these things tied to help growing an economy, strengthening the community by these investments? And we want to try to look for those projects that that have those type of characteristics to it because this is about getting a return on the investment. This is about being smart and also trying to leverage and stretch the dollars as much as we can. And we go through a very extensive review process. We work with our planning and development districts. They are our frontline project managers uh, to help us go through this process. And we look at it from an economic development and community development standpoint. Do they have regional collaborations? Do they have strong local support? Do these help move the community forward? Do you have multiple funding partners? And it's not always the case in every single aspect, but these are the these are the attributes that we try to look for because we know that we're accountable. Uh, we're accountable for these resources, and we want to do the best job we can in stretching the dollars and having the impact long-term with these investments. Looking down the list of eight, we've got things in the uh, town of Cahoma, the city of Moorhead, Cleveland, uh, Brookhaven Industrial Park, Transportation Infrastructure Project, city of Hollandale. Uh, you've got uh, stuff uh, around Lexington. Are these things focused in, in areas where would normal residents of these towns notice these projects or the results of these projects, or are these geared more toward industry or any other particular sector? I would say all of the above. Uh, we try to leverage these uh, these investments that help, obviously, our, our business community so they can continue to grow and expand or help attract because you're building a stronger system or a stronger uh, infrastructure so they can help be competitive. We also connect the projects to actual uh, communities. Uh, these projects truly do that. They will not only impact the individual citizens, but they will impact the communities. They will impact business and industry, and thereby actually making the entire community's economic viability stronger. MPB's Ezra Wall with Chris Massingill of the Delta Regional Authority. The agency just announced $15 million in infrastructure grants to be spent in the Delta. Up next, how do you access the justice system when you can't afford an attorney? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Is college too late to teach sex ed? My parents were too uncomfortable to talk about it, so we never talked about it. In Arkansas, a new law requires colleges to help prevent unplanned pregnancy. There's this 18 and 19-year-old brain thing that's magical thinking, sort of like, it's not going to happen to me. That story later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. The new MPB Public Media app is available now. Watch MPB TV, listen to MPB Think and Music Radio, and stay in the know with MPB News. Search for the MPB Public Media app in the App Store and Google Play stores today. 
Your favorite MPB Think Radio shows are now available on your favorite podcast app. So open that app and subscribe to any local program you love, like Everyday Tech. Android does have the most delicious operating system, I find. Jelly, it's jelly bean. The Gestalt Gardener. What's up? What you got going on? And of course, MPB's Season Pass with myself, Sam Wells, and Jay White. Hey, That's my guys, man. man. So what are you waiting for? Go search and subscribe today. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. More than 600,000 Mississippians don't have access to the justice system because they can't afford it. It's a challenge that is met with legal aid services. But that help is often hard to come by with only 30 legal aid attorneys serving the entire state. The Mississippi Access to Justice Commission partners with agencies and private attorneys to help people with civil legal aid. Hines County Chancery Court Judge Denise Owens tells MPB's Desiree Frazier much of the need for legal and legal aid comes in cases involving children and guardianships. The Access to Justice Commission uh, only deals with civil cases. And in civil cases, there is, even if someone is a defendant in a case and doesn't have money to hire an attorney, there is no attorney. We have no way of appointing them attorneys. Uh, In a lot of cases involving children, we find that poor people, working, single mothers don't have money, for example, to get guardianships. Uh, We have a lot of grandparents who are trying to take care of grandchildren. And in order to enroll them in school, get the medical treatment, they need guardianships. That requires a court order. And oftentimes, many are on fixed income. They can't afford the $150, $200 an hour for an attorney to prepare the guardianship. So those are the types of things. Sometimes uh, people, older people, find out their birth certificates. The name on the birth certificate isn't the name they've been using. And it can, you know, be an E at the end versus an L. Well, they can't access their Social Security, their Medicare, anything of that nature if it doesn't match. So they're required to get a court order, either correcting that uh, name change or changing it to um, the the name that uh, is on the name that's on the birth certificate. How can the commission help in these areas? Some cases, in some instances, it is just better for somebody to have a lawyer, to have legal advice. For example, let's say custody or if somebody's parental rights to their children were being terminated. So the commission is working hard to make sure, well, those people have actual legal advice through uh, the Legal Services Program, the Mississippi Volunteer Lawyers Program, or some other program. But then there are cases where um, the legal advice may not be needed. The name change, they're simple court orders, but the impact can uh, be substantial financially. So we we have developed forms for them to use uh, where they can fill those forms out 
It has all the information, and then they can file it with the court and get an order. So some name changes, removal of minority, some even divorces, because uh, you'll find in Mississippi, because of our homestead exemptions laws, if you're married um, and one spouse is not agreeable to purchasing and signing finance papers, you can't buy a house. So... uh, those types of things uh, people can do by themselves if they just had the proper forms. How many clinics do you have? How many attorneys do you have that can help people with these kind of uh, issues? Because I heard you say there are at least 600,000 people in the state who are eligible for the service. Right. And legal services, uh, I thought it was 32. They now say that it's less than that. Only have about 30 lawyers to represent 600,000 people. And that's just not possible. Um, so uh, we have to ask the private bar to volunteer their services. Um, And there are other clinics. uh, Catholic Charities has a clinic. Several of the churches have clinics. So we encourage and try to help the bar to establish uh, programs for lawyers to volunteer their time. And the commission has been working on the rules. You know, initially lawyers were reluctant to volunteer because that meant that once they were in the case, no matter what, they had to stay in that case until uh, it ended. So the commission was successful in getting a rule passed that allows lawyers now to just help someone on part of a case so they can just tell them how to do the form or they can write a letter form or they can just attend a deposition and they don't have to represent them during the entire case. MPB's Desiree Fraser with Hines County Chancery Court Judge Denise Owens. Lisa Foster is the director of the Office for Access to Justice at the U.S. Justice Department. She tells Desiree Fraser the federal government reaches out to states to bring scattered resources together for quicker action. Our office was created six years ago by former Attorney General Eric Holder to address the access to justice crisis in both the criminal and civil justice systems. Too many people in the United States don't have access to the legal services they need to take care of themselves and their families. So our office tries to marshal federal resources to improve access to justice in the states. What can you do to help a state like Mississippi that is rural and has a large uh, population that doesn't have access and is in poverty? I'll give you a great example. One of the things that we've done is create what's called the White House Legal Aid Interagency Roundtable. And that's an organization of 21 federal agencies who all work together to think about how federal programs would work better if they included access to legal services and access to justice. So a great example is medical legal partnerships, which is being explored here in Mississippi. We've worked, our office has worked with the Department of Health and Human Services to ensure that community health centers around the country are allowed to spend some of their money on the provision of legal services. Because what the doctors have all realized is that a lot of the problems their patients experience are not just medical problems. They're social and economic problems, and sometimes lawyers can help them solve those problems and people get healthier. So for example, if a child has asthma, a doctor may be able to give that child an inhaler 
But if the child's living in a home that has no heat in the winter and no air conditioning in the summer or is filled with mold or rodents, that child's not going to get better. A lawyer can address that underlying substandard housing. And so we've persuaded Health and Human Services to allow their clinics to pay for lawyers. We've done the same with veterans services, with housing, with all kinds of federal programs that try to improve the lives of low-income people and vulnerable populations in the United States. Have you been able to measure uh, the success or are you still in the building stages? Have you been able to see anything concrete come out of it? Well, a little of both. So um, again, with medical legal partnerships, there are now hundreds of them around the country, and they're um, in both our community health centers, in some Native American tribes. We have them now up in Alaska, a very rural area, where, again, there may be a health clinic, but there's a capacity there to also provide some legal services. So um, we have seen a lot of success, but we're still building. There, There's a long way to go. Do you think uh, Mississippi can succeed at that and really make it work for folks? Medical legal partnership? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And there are all kinds of other ways that Mississippi could take advantage of federal resources. Uh, For example, Congress has provided something called um, the Victims of Crime Act funds. These are funds that are collected as a result of fines paid by criminal defendants, big corporations, to the federal government. Those are held in a fund, and they're distributed out to states. The amount of money that has gone to the states has tripled in the last three years. Mississippi has gone from $4 million to over $18 million from 2013 to 2016. That's $12 million of money for victims of crime in Mississippi. Now, a lot of victims of crime will do better if they have access to lawyers. MPB's Desiree Fraser with Lisa Foster, Director of the Office for Access to Justice at the U.S. Justice Department, on getting legal aid to those who can't afford an attorney. Up next, the U.S. Justice Department is saying goodbye to private prisons. We'll take a closer look at some of the reasons. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Your favorite MPB Think Radio shows are now available on your favorite podcast app. So open that app and subscribe to any local program you love, like Everyday Tech. Android does have the most delicious operating system, I find. Jelly, it's jelly bean. The Gestalt Gardener. What's up? What you got going on? And of course, MPB's Season Pass with myself, Sam Wells, and Jay White. That's my guys, man. So what are you waiting for? Go search and subscribe today. It's high school football time, and that means it's time for Friday night under the lights. Hello, everyone. I'm Russ Robinson. Join me, Jay White, Jake Wimberly, George Broadstreet, and the whole gang as we bring you all the scores and the stories that make up high school football across the state of Mississippi. So join us tonight at 10 o'clock right here on MPB Think Radio. If you're print impaired, MPB's radio reading service is here for you. Our dedicated team of volunteers bring the world of news and entertainment to you. For information and to see if you qualify, call us at 601-432-6301. Is college too late to teach sex ed? My parents were too. 
uncomfortable to talk about it, so we never talked about it. In Arkansas, a new law requires colleges to help prevent unplanned pregnancy. There's this 18 and 19-year-old brain thing that's magical thinking, sort of like, it's not going to happen to me. That story later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The U.S. Justice Department is done with private prisons. Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates announced recently the department will not renew contracts with the the 13 private prisons it currently uses. Though private prisons represent only a fraction of the overall federal prison population, they still hold about 22,600 inmates. One of the prisons in question is the minimum federal correctional institution in Yazoo City. Blake Feldman is criminal justice advocate coordinator for the American Civil Liberties Union in Mississippi. He tells us a recent inspector general report makes it clear that private prisons just aren't working. About a week before the um, deputy attorney general um, Sally Yates issued the memo, the inspector general issued a report on the conditions in the private prisons. It was pretty detached and used cold language, but it made very clear that there was more violence in the contracted prisons than in the prisons that the Bureau of Prisons operates. And there have been needless deaths from people not getting access to medication that they need when they're suffering from curable illnesses or delayed treatment. Pretty much just how all the corners that are being cut in the private prisons um, to worse conditions, underfunding and understaffing. How many, I mean, interrupt for a second, how many federal prisons are privately run? 13. Was this across the board? Were these findings across the board? What the report did find was that violence and the use of lockdowns in those facilities were nine times more frequent than in other You just facilities. said lower staffing and um, not enough funding. Is that because these are private prisons, therefore there's a profit margin? I mean, there was actually one prison that actually decided not to have sufficient medical staff because it was cheaper to pay a, fin- a penalty than to pay for appropriate bare minimum medical staffing. So it's absolutely, it's the same issues that we see with the private prisons in the state system is um, their primary duty is to their shareholders, which is kind of a national shame in and of itself. But on top of that, it's completely counter to the priority that the public has. We want these prisons to um, promote public safety. We want people to be rehabilitated. 95% of prisoners reenter into society when all these corners are being cut and a private prison corporation doesn't really care about rehabilitating a prisoner. They want to get as many as they can and spend as little money. They have less programs and the conditions are worse and there's not any focus really on rehabilitation. If if there's no mental health care, my question has to be, why are mentally ill inmates in prison as opposed to in a mental health facility? If you really graphed the populations of people in psychiatric facilities since the 70s and graft population of people in prisons and jails since the 70s, it's completely indirectly 
directly correlated. So it's as our country moved away from institutionalized psychiatric care, it really, um, the default and the de facto has become the criminal justice system, kind of just as how in the 90s, when well, the 80s and 90s, the immigration system became very entangled in um, the criminal justice system. In many ways, that's where modern privatized prison came from. Corrections Corporation of America, CCA, started in the 80s when it secured a contract in Houston, Texas, and it was for immigration. And that was a federal prison? And that had to do with immigration? You said there are 13 altogether. Is this same company in charge of other federal prisons around the country? There are really three main companies. GEO Group, CCA, those are the publicly traded ones. The other one is smaller, MTC, and that is the corporation that runs the private prisons in Mississippi. What's going to happen in Mississippi? What's going to happen? Is the prison going to close? It's going to be taken over by somebody? What? Actually, what the memo from Sally Yates said was that they would begin phasing out over the next five years because over the next five years, all of the contracts for the 13 prisons will have come up for renewal. Best case scenario is when that happens, they just completely decline, but there's also a chance that they might just reduce the number of beds to the contract. Even right after this um, happened and the share started to plummet for GEO Group, one of their executives talked to funders and said, we've been very, very successful at finding other partners. We also know that now that there's this move towards rehabilitation, they've actually tried to get into um, privatizing halfway houses and things like that. So there's room for them to, like any multi-billion dollar corporation, find a way to evolve, which they have. Blake Feldman is criminal justice advocacy coordinator with the ACLU of Mississippi. Thank you so much, Blake. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening and join us Monday at 830 for the next Mississippi edition. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the Mississippi Office of Homeland Security with a reminder that you can report suspicious behavior to law enforcement or a person of authority by calling one 1-8- 8